Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Podcast. I am Deidre Tyler Holtz. Today, we'll be talking to Vinick Thomas, author of Risk and Resilience in the Area of Climate Change. How are you doing today? I'm well. Thank you very much, and, and thank you for having me. Thank you. I wonder if you could start by telling us a little about yourself and how you got started on this project. All right, so thank you. Um, I started on this, as many people would uh, say after they've written a book, uh, that it grew out of things that they have been doing, uh, not necessarily with a book in mind. In my case, um, I'm actually a professor here, uh, here meaning in in Asia, uh, and I've been doing this for some seven years. And um, although my main field, uh, my PhD and work before uh, was in uh, straightforward, straight economics, how economies work, um, I got very interested in the idea of growing risks and what we can do about it. And you can imagine uh, the decade of the 2010s and especially the 2020s, there really has been a an increase in global as well as local uh, disasters. And the question is, are they beyond our control or can we do something about it? And that makes a huge difference. And that took me to the issue of climate change, um, which in a way was spurred by a question a reporter asked when we had done a report on natural disasters in the world and what the World Bank, for which I was working at that time, this was about 15 years ago, um, uh, noticing that, wow, I see that floods and storms are on the rise, so are heat waves and uh, forest fires, but you don't see the same thing about on uh, earthquakes and volcanoes, what you might call geophysical phenomenon. Why is it that the first group, the so-called hydrometeorological ones, are taking off like that, and the others, the geophysical ones, are not? Uh, that stopped me in my tracks. And the key difference I noted at that time was that uh, these uh, hydrometeorological ones are related to climate change, and the earthquakes and volcanoes are just not. Uh, well, that led to the book eventually, uh, which really is based on the classes I taught, uh, particularly at the National University of Singapore. Great. You talk about the majority of Americans and how they rank environmental and climate change. What are their priorities? Right. Now, this is a 
critical question, if I may give away one of the main messages of the book, is that it really comes down to what people think. We can say, oh, do we have the technology to solve the problem? Do we have the financing to solve the problem? My sense, having plowed through this, is that those things, technology and financing, will come if people press for change. And so in the case of climate change, the, the huge question is, what do Americans think? And here, one big change has been that if 20 years ago, this was not on the radar screen at all, it would be right to say that people recognize climate change clearly and squarely today in a way that they had not done so some time back. Um, secondly, there is a further qualification to climate change, and that is, is it just climate change or is it human-caused climate change? That makes all the difference. Why is that? If it is entirely natural, well, wh what are you going to do about it? I mean, you know, you don't know whether it will happen, how bad it would be. Uh, good economists would say, don't put money uh, or, uh, on things uh, that you, you may not experience. But if it is human cost, then there is a strong case for taking action in a way you would not have otherwise. So on the second question, not that there is climate change, but is it human cost? The view is still very split. The scientists, I would say 99% of them, uh, are clear, patently clear, that the climate change we are experiencing today is human-caused. But it is not second nature for everyone to believe that that is a case. And even if they agree with an article that says so, it's not something that's in your DNA. A third question is even more important, but also a qualification. And that is, all right, you say there is climate change, you say it is human cause, but is it something on which my country should do something? And there it is really, really split. And uh, split even more than the previous one. And if you ask uh, people about election priorities, uh, just look at the list of things that people name first uh, that their candidate should support before they make up their mind. It is nowhere in the picture. So in that sense, we have a problem. We have an issue that can be labeled an existential crisis. How many can we name that? But this existential crisis does not have the popular support for acting against in terms of putting money uh, 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 behind that pro problem. Not just to say that I think there is something going on. That's the easy part. But the tough part is among the 10 things you should do, this is one of the top ones. And that is yet to happen. And yet, we may come back to this later, the United States has acted uh, in an unprecedented way in uh, 
spending on climate action. Well, talking about split spending, what about the Inflation Reduction Act? How does this assist with climate change? Precisely. So that is the uh, um, the most significant um, measure that I was about to mention. Um, so the Inflation Reduction Act, it is a number of things. Um, some people would say, uh, well, it's not really just about inflation, and that's probably right. Uh, it's a term that captures a number of things, reducing the uh, cost of drugs, um, uh, providing greater protection to people. But in its essence, the big ticket item in terms of spending has to be, uh, be energy and renewable energy and carbon, low carbon energy, and which is uh, really directly related to climate change. So this is historically the biggest package we have seen anywhere on taking actions against climate change. How does that square with what I mentioned earlier about ambivalence on whether it's human cost and even if it is, whether my country should act on it? Well, in the economics jargon, there is a term, uh, negative externalities, you know, the things that businesses do, which really nearly cause harm to others. Uh, intentional, probably not. Unintentional, yes. Um, and on those, governments have a role. And there is absolutely uh, perfect justification for government to step in and act where private uh, enterprise and uh, businesses uh, in their pursuit of economic activity and profits uh, end up harming others. Air pollution is an example, water pollution is an example, and climate change is a quintessential example. And on this one, against some tough odds, this administration has taken this extraordinary step. Uh, and uh, I can't say the entire public opinion was really behind it, etc. But this is the role of the government. But spending by itself is not the answer. Spending well and efficiently, efficiently and measuring the effects and following up and staying with it over a period of time it's not just for one administration, it's spread over time. All those things will determine whether the Inflation Production Act will really deliver. But it is absolutely a step in the right direction. Tell us about the economic analysis and their short-term predictions about climate change. Right. So, in a way, uh, it is ironic that the economics profession um, has given climate change uh, a short shrift. And that is a pity because economics has been extraordinarily influential in a good sense of promoting, let's say, social inclusion, women's education, gender equality, uh, and a whole lot of things on which um, where it was shown that is not only a good thing to do, but it is actually in the economics 
interest, then, um, you know, uh, the spending and the investments followed. But not in the case of environmental protection and not in the case of climate change. There are a host of reasons for that. Um, but in this connection uh, of the question about the economic analysis, um, the natural capital compared to, let's say, the financial capital or compared to, let's say, even human capital is one that has been ignored. So while we invest in financial capital, we put money in the bank or we do all kinds of things with it, you start a business, that's great. Uh, human capital, sure, we will educate ourselves and um, take classes and this and that, that's great. But when it comes to natural capital, what do we do? We cut down forests. For heaven's sake, how can that be investment? So um, economic analysis shows that, that that's a problem. It's like a, a, a tripod holding a camera. You have two legs on which you are investing, and the third one you are systematically chopping. And when we do that, the mangroves disappear, uh, coral reefs disappear, natural protections disappear, emissions uh, crowd the atmosphere, uh, uh, the air gets warmer, there's no precipitation, there is greater warmth and energy, and so the storms are deadlier. Uh, you see floods everywhere, in Midwest uh, and all across the country. All of that, it, the economic analysis does show that would be the result of destroying natural capital. And that unfortunately has happened and people are blowing the whistle now, but precious decades have been lost. And this is not a story of the United States only, it's a story of economic growth and development which has brought untold prosperity and uh, a poverty reduction in developing countries especially as well but at the price that unfortunately is one we just cannot afford because at this rate the economic analysis tells us that even straightforward growth and well-being just won't be possible and so we need to reverse what has been done in recent decades and that is another message of the of the book as well. Now, you talk about extreme weather. Can you tell the audience the major consequences of the extreme weather? Right. So extreme weather, particularly caused by climate change, they really uh, fall in two categories, too much water and too little water. Um, if only we had an ingenious way of um, saving the excess water storing and uh, making it available when it is um, a, a drought, um, that would have helped. Uh, we are not there yet, uh, but what extreme uh, floods and storms on the one hand um, do and what um, heat waves and um, and uh, forest fires uh, and droughts do on the other side um, are two distinct but related aspects of climate change. Related, I say, because in a big country like the United States or a 
big nation like uh, China or India, Russia, etc. Um, the two uh, go together in the sense that at the same time, you can have a massive drought and a massive uh, flood. So um, the, 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 I guess if you just look at the last few months, you don't have to go further. You see the extreme impact of what I'm just characterizing as the climate change impact of uh, too many floods, too many uh, storms, heat waves, and droughts, uh, and frequent, and at the same time, more intense. So um, the northern Italy's floods that we just experienced a couple of months ago, um, it brought the country to its knees. Agriculture was decimated fruits and vegetables and exports and this and that that people depend on uh, absolutely wiped out in a way they had never seen before because in a day you got as much rain as you would have gotten in months. A year ago uh, in Pakistan, one third of the country went underwater and 10% um, of the GDP of a poor country uh, was um, was lost as a result. So lives and livelihoods, almost 2,000 people uh, was the casualty. Closer to home uh, in the United States, uh, we, we have a string of events. And you can go back actually to Katrina uh, as modern climate changes uh, uh, impact. Uh, but then keep going, uh, you know, Hurricane Maria, Hurricane Harvey, uh, Sandy in 2012. These are all uh, uh, manifestations of too much water at the wrong time and um, intense um, storm accompanying that. Now, one qualification, scientists are very careful not to say that a particular event can be attributed squarely and clearly to human-caused climate change. But taken together, the uptick in the floods and storms and the uptick in the heat waves, uh, that is unambiguously related to too much emissions in the air, according to scientific evidence. A word on the heat waves, because that now is proving to be a game changer. I hope it's not going to be a game ender in the sense that just about all across the world, uh, the U.S. North, and Canada, I mean, there was a time people would say, well, if the weather gets really unbearable, uh, we can go to Canada. But the, uh, but the heat waves and the forest fires in Canada uh, they are having ramifications in really far-flung place, places as well. Southern Europe is a huge uh, example. Uh, the west of west coast of uh, the United States, the Australian uh, forest uh, bushfires. So these people say, uh, scientists uh, in particular note, uh, have consequences that we had not anticipated. When you are in Arizona and you have uh, you know, above uh, 110 degrees, not for a couple of days, which may have happened, but for days on end, months, 
And then at night, the temperature doesn't dip much below 100. Then you have a problem if you are the elderly. Uh, yeah, you can run um, um, the air conditioning, but many can't. But uh, even if you can, at that continuous day in and day out heat wave, the body really begins to take a toll. And so the, we are just learning how severe the health impacts of extreme heat are. And this is just the beginning. So there is a lot of work to be done in being able to cope better uh, to the heat implications of climate change. Now, you use the term wicked problems. Can you tell us about that term? Right. So difficult problems, tough problems, uh, elusive and uh, hard to uh, deal with problems. We've had many, right? I mean, they, they, are, they are with us and uh, as part of uh, life that you find ways to deal with them. Now, the wickedness of those difficult problems comes from some built-in tendencies uh, to make the solution uh, very difficult to figure out. Uh, so I guess I could name several features of climate change. Many of them are common to others. It's just a matter of degree. For example, one is a simple elusiveness or the complexity. Uh, uh, and therefore, if you can't deal with them in time, it will take you to a tipping point, which is a term used to say that after that, all bets are off. You just can't control it. And climate change belongs to that category. But we've had other pandemics could have tipping points if you couldn't figure out a way to, you know, either vaccination, if you believe in it, or, uh, or isolate this, that, and the other. It could get out of control too. So in that sense, that first feature of being extremely elusive and hard to sort out is a feature of climate change. But I wouldn't say others don't have that feature. Maybe the degree is greater. A second one I would add uh, is that, and this may be particularly a climate change uh, phenomenon, although uh, uh, humanity has dealt with the ozone layer, which was causing uh, skin cancer and dealt with it. And the, the, the feature is that you need many countries to cooperate and uh, coordinate. In other words, if uh, only a few countries dealt with climate change and the others merely went uh, on uh, polluting the world, uh, that, would, that would work. So that global coordination is a second feature that makes it not just a tough problem, but a wicked problem. Again, I wouldn't say it's an only in the case of climate change, but it kind of seems to be a, a, a rather important characteristic. The third one, uh, and this is, uh, now we're getting to climate change's wickedness uh, in particular, uh, is that um, the ones who are supposed to solve the problem are also the ones causing the problem. So what, what do I mean by that? Well, fossil fuels, with all the benefits it has brought in bringing electricity to the people, et cetera, et cetera, still is a lobby. Uh, 
um, and um, cutting fossil fuels and replacing with renewables is the number one answer to climate change. But the very people who could lead that direction are also the people who would support the fossil fuels for a variety of other reasons. So the ones who are supposed to solve the problem are also creating the problem. You can call them vested interests. So we have this so-called political economy, which really stands out in the case of climate change. Maybe we have that in the case of financial crises and other things as well, but definitely it stands out. And uh, climate change has those three points I mentioned, which make it a super wicked problem. And then there is one more that I would say is all climate change. And that is when we have problems, um, even if they are tough to solve, there are some natural tendencies that help with the solution. Let's say you have overfishing going on, uh, but uh, it's difficult to solve because each person wants to catch as many fish and is not thinking about what it's doing to the totality. But they also can see, well, if we all did that, that's trouble. So can we get together and figure out a way? Property rights, uh, rights to fish, uh, some agreements, this, that, and the other. Uh, a, a, a Nobel Prize winning economist, uh, uh, Eleanor Ostrom, uh, came up with uh, the institutional underpinnings of how this can be done. So a tendency to um, to solve the problem that is existing naturally, which you can underpin with greater policy action. That, in the case of climate change, at least in some respects, seems to be going the wrong way, meaning the hotter it is, the more you run the, uh, the, the air conditioning, the more you run the elect, uh, air conditioning, the more fossil fuels you use, the more you use that, uh, the global warming goes up even more, and so on and so forth. I mean, there are a number of things uh, that in the midst of the negative or the harmful impacts of climate change, you want people to cope, but in that coping, you are actually contributing even more to the original causes. So this so-called non-convergence really stands out in my mind. And uh, I, I, I woke up to this particularly in 2023. And so the book doesn't go far enough on that, but it does have a, a picture showing how this confluence of events in the case of climate change uh, may call humanity uh, to rely on some kind of a circuit breaker that says, look, we need to stop and reset the whole thing because we are headed the wrong way. And it seems to be the case that carbon emissions, instead of going down, it's actually going up. And the heating of the atmosphere, instead of stabilizing, is worsening each year. Every year is worse than the previous. So the non-convergence would be, uh, is that the fourth or the fifth? Anyway, uh, perhaps the fourth in this list uh, of features that make climate change 
not a wicked problem, actually, a super wicked problem. Now, we've talked about the heat. What about the extreme cold snowstorms in the winter? Is that connected with climate change? Very interesting, very interesting uh, question because uh, global warming by the terminology should be all about warming. And what about um, extreme cold in the winter? The better term might have been extreme weather rather than warming because uh, what you just noted uh, in terms of uh, uh, extreme cold um, in certain areas uh, is partly, and work is still going on, and I can't say that is all conclusive uh, to um, to um, uh, climate change. Uh, the 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 thinking on this goes something like this: that uh, a great deal uh, of uh, uh, cold air and cold um, uh, flows are protected or kept uh, in the Arctic circles. And um, that vortex uh, can be broken when it is not cold enough anymore. And that cold air escapes and gets to places where it's not supposed to be as a result of uh, the sheets melting and as a result of, uh, say, Arctic Circle not being uh, cold enough anymore. So in a paradoxical way, uh, that escaping uh, cold air as a result of it being too warm uh, to, the, to Europe and to the United States, as happened in 22, is really another manifestation of climate change. And uh, you can't blame a, a casual observer saying, that, hey, what's going on? You're saying there's climate change and there's global warming. My winter was worse in terms of the coldness. Well, it's more extreme, true, but the reasons, underlying reasons still uh, are uh, in the area uh, of, uh, of, of climate change. Um, so I included, along with all the other things we've talked about in terms of a greater um, heat uh, causing um, uh, stronger storms and more precipitation causing more uh, floods and then uh, winters uh, because of this polar vortex uh, phenomenon pushing cold air to places where it shouldn't be going um, is just a combination, it's a deadly combination uh, of extreme weather that we are having difficulty coping with. Now, you talk about food security and increase in food price. What's the connection with climate change there? Absolutely. I think the, this is where it, it, it hits home and uh, can't get much closer than that. And that is um, extreme weather, um, whether it's floods or whether it's heat, uh, it has ramifications for agriculture. Uh, and it's very direct. Um, where I live, which is Southeast Asia, the implications are just just too, too glaring. Uh, 
South Asia, India, where I originally come from, uh, is, is a case in point as well. You just can't work anymore from 1 to 4 p.m. That is, uh, you know, uh, several hours lost. That's less productivity. Just if you le left it like that, just imagine your productivity is down 30 percent. Um, your your agricultural output will have to take a hit. Now in Southeast Asia, you see some farmers trying to uh, plant uh, seeds at night. There is a problem with that. You know there is not enough light, and it's uh, it's uh, it can be very wasteful. But the impact of heating, ex extreme heat on agriculture is very direct. Um, it also has um, um, a great deal of impact on uh, pollination, on pest control, uh, and uh, salt. And then now we turn to the flood side of the equation. So I was just mentioning the heat side, uh, salt water intrusion uh, in uh, uh, coastal freshwater aquifers. That is bad news. Um, and uh, you just need also uh, climate-resistant varieties of seeds and ways of cultivating that, you know, that that is essential to keep food security going. So food security is in threat, is a threat in, in big ways, both on the heat side and on the flood side. Add to that, uh, and this is especially in, in developing countries, but you know, there's a lot of that is also exported to developed countries, so everybody is hurt, is the fact that with greater heat, uh, the issue of perishable goods, uh, fruits and vegetables, fruits and vegetables is also becoming a big issue. There are uh, refrigeration is not all that common in many parts of the world, and yet they do export, so it's timeliness. But if the heat uh, makes that difficult, uh, it is a, it's a problem. Let me just add one more thing on the relationship. So far, we have been talking about how climate change hurts food security uh, in these multiple ways, uh, but the way we farm and the way agriculture proceeds also contributes to climate change. Uh, every sector seems to do something or the other to climate change, the biggest one being energy, but energy is used in agriculture. Fertilizer, chemicals, etc., are used in agriculture. And livestock, which is part of agropecuario, that is a huge contributor to um, emissions. Uh, so uh, it's not to say that, therefore, you know, we have to reduce agricultural production, but we've got to find a way that is much better in dealing with uh, the impact agriculture and livestock are causing or producing uh, to climate change, which then in turn hurts the effectiveness of agriculture for ensuring food security. Uh, country after country is experiencing a rise in food prices. Not all of that is because of climate change. And the uh, 
Russia's war in Ukraine is definitely one cause. But this adds to that picture that food prices are just straightforward. The price that you see on the labels in the supermarkets is a direct cause, uh, uh, is a direct consequence of, uh, of uh, extreme weather that we are experiencing all, all over the world. Now, let's move to preparation. You talk about social capital and the earthquake in Nepal in 2015. Tell us more about their preparation. Yes. Um, and the social capital piece uh, links back to perhaps where we started about, you know, people's mindsets and their priority for dealing with more sustainable ways of living. Uh, in this case, it, it is often identified with the solution to the problem. And the case in point on Nepal that uh, I describe in the book uh, is actually one of an earthquake that took place in 2015, devastating. 9,000 people nearly died in a, in a region that was named, uh, that's named Gorkha. Um, the point here, though, is that whether it is a climate-related phenomenon or the so-called geophysical one that I mentioned, and in this case, an earthquake, how you deal with it is not so straightforward. It, the same event can hit two nations completely differently. Uh, I think it was 2011, thereabouts, when both Haiti and Chile were hit by a very similar earthquake. But the death toll and the results could not be more different. So how you deal with that uh, becomes a huge issue. Social capital, by which here is meant um, the uh, cohesion and the coordination and the commonness of purpose that is pulled together in dealing with a risk or a crisis, uh, that makes all the difference in what the results are going to be. In the particular case of Nepal, there is an interesting twist that, uh, in a way, um, there was quite a bit of good social capital put to use when uh, the earthquake was unleashed and people did incredible things. And you can have stories like this in almost so many of the other disasters. The state of Kerala that I come from in India uh, in 2018 had a biblical floods. They've never seen one like this. Uh, and um, it was not prepared for it. Early, early warning was not there. But the social uh, capital kicked in. And in the end, being a coastal uh, state, um, a bit like Florida, um, the fisher people pulled together all the fishing boats and that became the transport means. And they were the angels uh, for that episode in, uh, uh, in uh, saving lives. That is an uh, that's an, a manifestation 
of the use of social capital. In the case of Nepal, while this positive feature was noted, something to be aware of is that when external financing was made available, and nothing against that, it's actually critical because Nepal is a low-income country which needs the money to rebuild, but it did something uh, perverse on the social capital side. Is it that people were more unto themselves after that, or uh, was it that it was not coordinated? But in any case, some of the good things on, on that front of social capital did not survive well in the face of external financing that came through. I want to be sure to mention that the implication of this is not that there should not be external financing, but rather we need to be aware that as external financing or aid is provided, it needs to strengthen social capital, not hurt it in any way. And obviously this requires knowing the place and uh, if you're just flying in and fly in and out and just provide money, there are occasions where it could, it could even do more harm than good, but it can do a lot of good if it is also done in a consultative way uh, with great participation of the local population. And uh, that's probably the direction we should go. Now, in your book, you talk about relocation. Why are people forced to leave? Absolutely. This is... Uh, Arguably, the biggest visible impact of climate change. Um, we talked uh, today about agriculture and um, coastal areas are the ones hit the most uh, in the first instance. So one thing that is most visible is that, say, in Southeast Asia, but also the United States, uh, Florida being a case in point, cities are sinking. Um, I think as many as five small islands have actually all but disappeared in the Pacific uh, already. Uh, and, and these sorts of phenomena uh, are taking place. And in the case of the Pacific Islands, uh, there is a real question, and this is not a popular question, it's an extremely sensitive one. Is it even possible and economically sensible to um, build embankments in these such low-lying areas, uh, or is it better to help people migrate and move elsewhere? I know that a lot of people from the Pacific Islands moving to Kansas. Uh, they could be moving to all, all kinds of other places. And the reason is the economic reasons why they located uh, in coastal areas turn out to be a case where they located in harm's way. And climate change, which is a double, well, I mean, in this case, double in the sense that sea level is rising because of greater warmth produced by emissions, period. And coupled with um, groundwater sinking uh, land 
as a result, uh, overuse of groundwater. The two means the distance between the sea level and where people are living, uh, you know, is, uh, is, is get, getting more and more dangerous. Uh, and so uh, where they used to be, whether it's for fishing or other tourism or other purposes, they just can't do that anymore. So, I mean, uh, uh, I mentioned Italy, I mentioned Greece, um, south of uh, Europe, all these places which could have been or were uh, tourist uh, destinations are no longer so already. It's not a futuristic story. People will not be traveling to those places knowing that the next summer is going to be just as bad or worse than the previous one. So migration is, is a big uh, part of the implications of climate change because certain areas are becoming uninhabitable and also the economic prospects for people who live in those areas uh, are going to be tougher. So the World Bank has been um, doing estimates of that. Every time uh, you, know, you look at them, uh, it is a, an underestimate how many people. The biggest numbers of migrations are internal to the country, and you can understand why people would want to stay in the same place in terms of language and so on and so forth. But increasing numbers are also cross-border. And um, 1.2 billion by one estimate, this is not a World Bank estimate, but another source uh, could be moving uh, places uh, of residence uh, by 2050. Uh, that's a huge, huge number. And um, this, is the, this is the most visible aspect of uh, climate change. Now, you talk about the spread of disease. How is this related to climate change? Right. Well, now, uh, I think people were speculating uh, why all of a sudden you have all these uh, exotic uh, viruses that we didn't know about uh, coming back and, and again flipping back to my home state in India, and I never heard of uh, a virus called chikungunya. It's uh, it's deadly. It's awful. It really debil uh, debilitates you. But and apparently the last cases were in 1950s. But uh, just a few years ago, when I visited, um, this was uh, in my neighborhood, and. Um, you know, it's fatal, but uh, even if it's not, it's pretty bad. And there were several similar ones going on. And then dengue has been around, but why Why is it uh, uh, spreading like this? Why, why in Singapore you have <laughs> so much dengue? Um, well, the... There is a there is an equilibrium or a balance in nature, and it's not far fetched to imagine that pathogens uh, thrive. Uh, what are they? They are just organisms that cause disease to their host, whatever they are—a plant or whatever, uh, an animal—and those pathogens multiply 
when all of a sudden uh, heat, uh, uh, extreme weather, sh uh, just shakes up the equilibrium that you are used to. And um, I think the work on this is absolutely mushrooming. And um, some studies that I've looked at are fairly confident that uh, this multiplication and migration of uh, pathogens, uh, you know, uh, across, but that is uh, possibly the cause of COVID-19. But even if it isn't, it could be the cause of uh, such uh, viruses in the future. So the health impact through that route is pretty straightforward. I mean, it's pretty uh, believable. Uh, a lot more work needs to be done to say exactly how this will happen. But more straightforward is all the things that we have discussed, which is just heat wave. Uh, uh, people with handicaps or disabled or vulnerable elderly children they just hit hard. It's, uh, that's all you need. To, uh, that's that's straightforward. And the floods and the storms um, really uh, wreak havoc on the lives and livelihoods of people. Um, so that is um, clearly on the health side, just like we talked about agriculture. It's a direct hit that uh, we are taking as a result of human-caused climate change. Now, you gave the example of Vietnam. What are they doing to prevent their climate change problems? Yes, Vietnam is a very interesting case, particularly because it's an aspiring nation uh, for higher standards of living, just like anybody else. Uh, and... Uh, they have set the target of 2045 to achieve high income status. Uh, this is a, a, a threshold that IMF, the World Bank, etc., use, and uh, that beyond, say, $12,000 a month, uh, a year uh, average, uh, you are high income. Say, 1,000 to 12, you are a middle income, and below 1,000, you are a low income. We talked about Nepal earlier, uh, would be still a low income. Uh, we talked about India a bit. It's just a borderline middle income. Uh, China would be higher middle income. United States, Singapore, uh, etc., would be clearly on the high end, um, high end of the high income. And Vietnam, which is uh, sort of middle income, needs to grow, and I shouldn't use the word needs to, it can do it in many different ways, but let's say would like to grow at 7% a year, which is quite extraordinary if you think of the U.S. growing at, say, 2%, uh, and in order for it to become a high-income country by 2045. So what's the, what's the issue here? Uh, who would be against uh, a country wanting to improve the livelihoods of its people? Well, you know, Vietnam, although it is, it has a small carbon footprint because it's a small country, relatively speaking, it is one of the biggest, in, uh, grow, growing uh, 
user of fossil fuels, just like much of Southeast Asia. If it grew like that, that's bad news. If everybody, even if they have a small car, uh, carbon footprint says, well, I'm only a small part, so I'll do the same. Uh, what will happen to the world? Everyone has to do the part in mitigating against these emissions. Plus, Vietnam tops the list uh, of countries on their vulnerability to climate disasters along with Bangladesh. Those would be the two countries that are about hard, hardest hit. In a different measure, the, actually the United States is also way up there in being exposed and vulnerable to climate change. And the reason for that in the case of the United States is the extraordinary geographic um, diversity. Uh, you have mountains, you have uh, uh, coastlines, uh, jet, uh, jet stream. And uh, when you put, the, put it all together, uh, it, 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 it is quite complicated. But going back to Vietnam, the um, issue would then be, can it grow 7% or even 5%? without increasing fossil fuel use so much and at the same time taking actions against the inevitable increase in disasters regardless of the fossil fuel use that will happen. I say that as a footnote, it's already baked into the system. Whatever we do, uh, we're going to face more disasters because the atmosphere is already loaded with uh, emissions. And so whatever we do from here on will have an effect, but it will be delayed. And uh, Vietnam, for instance, will be facing more of these. So that growth should be qualified. It should not be the growth that others may have had in the past, but uh, it should be one that is highly adaptive to climate change, highly mitigating of climate change and not destroying the environment like in the past. It is saying the right things, saying some of these things that I just mentioned in its plan. So you asked about their actions. Um, they have an energy plan, which is much different from what it would have been 10 years ago in terms of using greater energy efficiency, using renewables, etc. But the devil is in the details and in implementation. Will all of that happen is the question. If it just grows and tries to become a high-income country by 2045, and if the others did the same, uh, then it's over. So we would wish Vietnam success in becoming a high-income country, country, but differently from what others did in the past. Now, you're not in favor of gradual change, but transformative change. Tell us why. Well, in a, in a way, uh, you know, we started again with uh, human uh, uh, sentiment on this. Do Americans believe in, uh, you know, the action on climate change and so on? So I would be the first to say that... Uh, you know, 
if it is gradual, but if it builds consensus and brings people along, that's that's better than a shock therapy that people don't believe in it, right? So I'm on the side of uh, systematic or gradual, if necessary, change or reform uh, that will stick rather than flip-flop. However, in this case, there is an arithmetic that's not in our favor, which is for decades we have run down this natural capital. It's gotten to the point where IPCC, which is the United Nations body that oversees what's going on on this whole matter, is saying that we have already crossed some tipping points of, that is, points of no return. And when you have that, then the room or the luxury of gradual change is being systematically taken away from you. So I say transformation and uh, transformative change, which many others would also say in and of itself as a good thing to do. But in this case, purely as a, matter of arithmetic, if you did gradual change on switching to low carbon energy, we'll never catch up because we've already blown it so far. If we had started on this in 1990 uh, to the Rio summit and all kinds of summits, all these meetings that have taken place, all kinds of promises were made, nothing happened. Well, if we had done it differently, then maybe gradual change would be okay. But at this stage, to really move the needle, you need transformative, that means wholesale switching from uh, highly polluting fuels. And I use that as a, as a, as a, as a symptom, as, a, as an example or the big example of what is needed. There are many other things. Some people would also include lifestyle changes which may not reduce the wealth well-being, but it will change, uh, you know, using uh, uh, public transportation, using the bicycle to work if you can, um, fewer air travel, um, and, and you, you know, substitute the quantity by quality of that air travel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But all of that needs to be done at a much greater space, as pace because of the arithmetic of climate change. And so that, that is, uh, you know, that's where I come out on that. And uh, I'm in favor of uh, transformative change, which many observers would also say is what we need as a humanity, that we need to switch to a more a world of massive recycling rather than you know uh, sort of regenerative growth rather than destructive growth i like i i also agree with that but just for this purpose as a minimum uh, the arithmetic is telling us that we need to also move very fast just to get the problem under control. Now, what's the overall message you want the reader to leave with once they finish your book? Well, I think uh, I would say that 
first of all, uh, the urgency for action, and that is just a follow-up from our last point, uh, needs to be recognized. I think everyone knows that is uh, that climate is changing, but the urgency for action with a timeline and uh, recognizing the arithmetic of that problem is missing. And that has to happen both in developed countries and developing countries. So laying this out uh, and then pointing out to the urgency would be a message of the book in no ambiguous terms. And linked to that, uh, I would say that um, we um, um, are looking at a situation where a number of things need to be done. And uh, it really, at the end of the day, starts with human mindsets. And uh, the second message related to the urgency would be that technology and financing and all of that can come, but they will come at a pace that is consistent with the urgency only if there is a groundswell of public opinion supporting that. COVID-19 showed that. Right? I mean, if people, uh, either they said it or politicians knew they would say it, that it would be a popular thing to do, solve the problem. Same thing here. I think we really need to um, get that public opinion really behind so that the politi political economy of this action would follow. So in a way, while the problem has a lot of uh, hard edges or content, uh, the main messages that I just mentioned, the twofold, the urgency and the public opinion, are, if you may call, more on the soft side, uh, that is, um, people kind of wanting to see this change and asking for that change. Um, and that uh, eventually would lead to the urgency of action. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on? Well, thank you. I mean, that is related to this last point, really, in the sense that if I, you know, as you write this, uh, there were a lot of technical solutions and lots of experiences, the do's and the don'ts. All of that came through, I hope, uh, in, in a condensed form. The book is only 200 pages, so they're just glimpses, but the references are long and lengthy, and so, uh, you know, one can plow through that. But at the end of the day, my frustration would be was that uh, the clarity of the change in mindset in recognizing this has not yet to take place. And that goes all the way from, um, you know, the, the weather reporters who just describe the weather, but don't say why it's happening to the economists uh, who do all kinds of fancy studies, but are not naming the cause and the effect. Uh, to the public uh, and the election uh, cycle in which uh, this is not even named as a top priority. All of those 
need to be followed up in a constructive way so that uh, people would uh, react in a way that produces much quicker results in the future. So the follow-up project would be perhaps ways and means, uh, maybe studies and cases, uh, especially drawing on positive cases of how this could have been done. And maybe they are boutique or small examples and how that might be scaled up uh, in our society. So that really would be a follow-up to this and uh, it may not be a book. It may not may be a set of stories told in a different way. Uh, and I'm very keen to do that as a follow-up. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. And we would like to thank you for being on the podcast. Again, we've been talking with the author of Risk and Resilience in the Era of Climate Change, Vinick Thomas. Thank you. Thank you very much.